Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, Pfizer moves up vaccine delivery to Canada. With an additional 5 million doses arriving in June, Canada will receive at least 1 million doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine every week from now until the end of May. And in June, that will be 2 million doses a week every week. The Prime Minister says he personally didn't know about the allegations against Jonathan Vance. My office knew there was uh, allegations uh, that were brought forward. We did not know the substance of those allegations until the Global News reporting. And the government extends Canada's mission to fight ISIS. Here's people in harm's way. You know, they're deployed in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq. And while all this is going on over there, they're arguing in Ottawa about why they can't have their senior generals uh, behave properly. It's Wednesday, March 31st. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. We're joined by longtime political writer and broadcaster Dan Legere. Dan, thank you for being with us. Well, good morning, Mark. Let's talk about where we stand with vaccines. This is uh, the number one preoccupation of Canadians right now. Uh, And across the country, there are different regimes, but more and more people are being vaccinated every day. I saw a note this morning that the city of Toronto has vaccinated more than half a million people in in their community. Uh, So progress is being made, but there are still lots of speed bumps in this process, aren't there? Yeah, there really does seem to be, Mark, that, uh, you know, I mean, reading through the news on the COVID situation in Canada is kind of, a, um, you know, a, a, you're going back and forth between optimism and almost despair, you know, uh, uh, because the vaccines are rolling out. I mean, now, you know, we all know people who are who are getting their shots. Um, and it's it's spreading out uh, right across the country, and uh, there is good news on the overall supply front. But at the same time, uh, this third or fourth wave, whatever we're, wave we're in, is really savagely hitting places like Ontario and, and Alberta, Quebec, uh, you know, BC. And uh, it's it's really a, a frightening thing. It, it, you know, it just seems like we make some progress getting vaccines and getting people in to get their their jabs, and then uh, we see this other stuff taking place. So it's uh, you know we're we're not out of the woods. I don't know how many times we've said that, but uh, even a, over a year later, we're still uh, still in in jeopardy. I'd say. Yeah, and and do you think that? The confidence of Canadians in the vaccine and in the process has been shaken by some of the inconsistent messaging around uh, some of the vaccines in particular. Well, yeah, you know, uh, it is a major thing. I mean, to get anything injected into your body is, is a, you know, a decision that people don't take lightly. And um, given the stakes that are there, I mean, these vaccines might prevent you or will prevent you from getting very, very sick from this or even dying. And uh, so it's a major thing. And and people, uh, you know, I see it all over social media, people going, oh, I got my first shot today and, and everyone's happy for them. Um, you know, but at the same time, you keep hearing about these outbreaks and upticks and the, the curve not flattening all over the place. And, uh, you know, so it, it's really a, it's really one of those things where you go back and forth, like I say, between optimism and fear. 
and uh, the the confusion over you know the vaccine rollout and, and some of the uh, you know the the stuff about the AstraZeneca problems. Uh, I think some of that as well. It was the bad messaging from the company itself, which has now cast the whole uh, process into some doubt. So, uh, you know, I think overall, most people and most experts believe it's all going to be safe. And the, the priority is to get everybody vaccinated. And that's what all governments in Canada have to have as their number one priority right now. All right, let's turn to the allegations against Jonathan Vance, who was the chief of the defense staff, of course. Uh, he was appointed by the Harper administration, but uh, there, there were suggestions that, that pe- the defense minister, that people in the prime minister's office, and perhaps even the prime minister himself, were aware of some of the allegations that had been made against him. The prime minister said yesterday he didn't know Uh, Does that put an end to the speculation around that? And where does that leave us? Uh, It doesn't end the speculation. Uh, It doesn't really clear much up at all, I don't think. And, uh, you know, we talked about messaging issues around the COVID issue of vaccination. Uh, There's severe messaging problems around this whole matter of what's going on in the senior leadership uh, in the Canadian military. Uh, you know, who knew what, when, of course, is the favorite game uh, to play. I've played it many times myself in, in the journalism business. Um, and I think the prime minister's sort of lack of clarity and, and lack of transparency on this whole thing is just making it worse. I mean, how many times have we seen this over the years, Mark, from governments of every stripe, premiers and prime ministers, if they would just come out and say what they know and be forthright about it, then half the problems would be solved. And, and rather than, you know, so now you have senior military officers who have brought their own careers into disrepute and their own record who, you know, in, in most other ways was very good. Now it's all being torn down. You have political fallout from it. You have confusion at the top of the public service. And this is not being helped by the prime minister either did or didn't know or somebody in the PCO knew and someone else didn't. I mean, the prime minister's office and the privy council office is where bad news goes to die. And but when it doesn't die, it comes back, then it's even worse, because these are the most intimate organs of the government, if you will, uh, with the prime minister. So it just it never seems to go away. and, And the government doesn't seem to be able to solve it. It's perplexing. Yeah, and and what do you think of? Uh, I mean, it, it feels like it's been a slow trickle in terms of the the new information that's that's become available about these allegations, not just against Jonathan Vance, but against his successor Art McDonald. And and what are we learning about the culture at the Canadian Armed Forces in the senior leadership ranks? And and is anything being done in the short term to address that? Well, look, uh, armies tend to be macho uh, organizations with a very, very, you know, the warlike uh, male ethic, um, and they can't stay like that. You can't, you don't have enough people in the military without having women playing a very uh, major role, and, you know, everything in our country's outlook um, is pointing towards inclusion of women in these in these matters of state, and uh, and to make sure that you know it's good for everybody, not just the women involved. And now, when you have things like this, who wants to join the army? What woman is going to want to join the army if they feel like 
they could be subjected to harassment or, or this type of thing. And, you know, if the government uh, would just be more, uh, as I say, forthright about these things, a lot of these problems would go away. But it certainly suggests to me that, uh, you know, um, that the major focus on getting rid of sexual harassment in the military uh, has failed. And, uh, you know, this is a, a da- uh, this is a fall down on the part of the senior officers. And, um, you know, it doesn't look good on any of them over there. And, and But, you know, the real prey, the real target in this is not going to be any general. Generals come and go. You know, the, the target is political. And so if, uh, if this issue can be used to tarnish the prime minister and, and the liberal government, then people are going to do that. All right, let's talk about Canada's uh, participation in the fight against the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, ISIS. Uh, Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan said yesterday Canada will keep up to 850 troops in Iraq and the surrounding region for another year. Uh, this mission began in October 2014, and it, 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 without that extension, it was technically scheduled to end today. Um, so th- there's still not a lot of information about exactly what's uh, what this mission is doing, uh, what what the activity is, what role Canadian troops are playing. So, so what do we know about this? Well, I mean, you know, they are authorized. The government is authorized up to 850 soldiers, but uh, it's actually a far smaller deployment. Um, you know, there's there's people there as advisors. There's some airplanes there. Anytime you go into that part of the world, you have to provide security, generally, you know, for your own people and for your own mission. So often that's done by special operators uh, within the armed forces and the government, uh, you know, with with some justification, doesn't like to say very much about what those people are actually doing every day. Uh, But they're, you know, but again, Mark, you know, here's people in harm's way. You know, they're deployed in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq. Um, and while the, all this is going on over there, they're arguing in Ottawa about why they can't have their senior generals uh, behave properly. And uh, this doesn't this doesn't help. Uh, but in terms of the overall mission against uh, ISIS and and the terrorists, uh, uh, you know, in that part of the world, uh, you know, Canada wants to keep going and be, and to be part of the international effort to uh, to stem that. Uh, um, you know, to to cut back on terrorism and to defend against it um, and to to keep these ISIS people bottled up. Uh, so we're part of the international coalition. We're playing a small role, but I think the, it's almost more of a political message uh, to our allies and to the rest of the world that Canada remains engaged in this issue and isn't going to just walk away, um, you know, which is especially, I think, important after the last four years of uncertainty about what the Americans were going to do under the Trump administration when you didn't know from one week to the next uh, what the priorities were going to be. So, you know, Canada sending a political message in staying there, uh, although it doesn't look like it's a major uh, military mission, i.e. I. with people with guns out in the woods. Yeah. All right. Great stuff, Dan. Thank you very much for sharing your perspective with us today. Okay, Mark, thanks for the call. That's Dan Legere, longtime political writer and broadcaster. I understand how um, challenging this can be for Canadians. The science is evolving as we get more and more data. Now, here's what Canada's political columnists and commentators are writing about today. 
In the National Post, Tasha Kiridan argues the AstraZeneca advice is another in Canada's long list of pandemic flip-flops. Kiridan writes, It's true that COVID-19 is a new disease and the science is continually evolving. But Canada's public health officials still made a shocking number of mistakes. As for the AstraZeneca mess, it could not come at a worse time. Canada stands at a critical juncture, with over half the country in the third wave of the pandemic. In the race between virus and vaccine, there is no room for error. In the Toronto Star, Heather Malik argues, the right not to get a COVID-19 vaccination will cost others their lives. Malik writes, I don't blame a federal government hamstrung by provinces run like individual nations in healthcare and education. We are a country that varies wildly. Surely the answer is to make vaccination mandatory, like filling out the census. I always thought Canadians regarded personal freedom as a duty, as in, I suppose I have personal freedom, but really isn't it a bit irresponsible to insist on it at all times? Yes, it is. In the Globe and Mail, Andrew Coyne argues the government's contempt for Canada's parliament is showing and telling. Coyne writes, The issue has long since ceased to be the original We Charity scandal. It is the government's continuing refusal to submit to the scrutiny of Parliament and more. Parliament's inability or unwillingness to induce its compliance. We saw how roughly this government handled Parliament while it had a majority, but that it should be able to get away with worse even after it has been reduced to a minority shows how completely Parliament has surrendered its prerogatives. It might as well not sit. Now here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Parliamentary Budget Officer will release his pre-budget outlook today. As CPAC's Martin Stringer reports, it's meant as an aid to help understand what the government might be facing when it tables its budget next month. Mark, many people will be poring over the Parliamentary Budget Officer's report when it's released this morning. The PBO stresses that its pre-budget outlook is not an exact prediction of it, where the economy will go, but just some basic economic facts it thinks the government will have to take into account when Finance Minister Christian Freeland tables the federal budget in less than a month's time on April 19th. The finance minister herself, last November, in her economic update, predicted a budget deficit of at least $381.6 billion. The parliamentary budget officer has helped out since then by already costing out some of the extensions to support programs that the government has announced since then. Most people now expect the deficit to be more in the neighbourhood of $400 billion. In the Parliamentary Budget Officer's Fall Outlook also, he predicted that the government's direct COVID support payments to individuals would decline by about 85% from a high of $122 billion over the past year. The Parliamentary Budget Officer also did not predict a rapid return to full growth in the economy. So Mark, it will be interesting to pour over some of the PBO's latest estimates when they're released on his website at 9 a.m. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will be in private meetings. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole will speak at an event hosted by the Fredericton Chamber of Commerce. Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller will take part in a news conference to provide an update on COVID-19. Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna will attend a virtual event. Minister for Women, Mariam Monsef, will announce a federal investment in high-speed internet access in southeastern Ontario. Small Business Minister Mary Ng will attend Canada's virtual trade mission to France. Justice Minister David Lametti 
will make a funding announcement and hold a news conference. And Economic Development Minister Melanie Jolie will make a virtual announcement in support of technology innovation in Toronto. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, March 31st. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.